The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora tato, this is Toby Manhai with another episode of your friendly local politics podcast, Gone by Lunchtime. What you're about to hear is part of the Gone by Lunchtime Megapod, a 12-hour epic event recorded on September 20 at Spinoff HQ. Enjoy. Kia ora tato, welcome back to the Spinoff Gone by Lunchtime Election 2023 Megapod. This is a very exciting hour ahead of us with Bernard Hickey, the man, the myth, the machine. The machine, yeah. Kia ora, how's it going? Interesting machine, fascinating machine. Yeah. We've been asking everybody about the Mojo oh, yeah. over the course of the day. Have you seen our Mojo meter? No, I haven't. Uh, the Mojo can meter. Can I hit it? Or you see that? You can see it up it? on the screen there. It's like all the different heads where they sit on the ah. Mojo meter. Um, and what we're asking, in honour of Chris Diffeluxen, who has been uh, talking a lot, as you will have heard, about New Zealand having lost its mojo. <laughs> We're trying to uh, conduct a survey to assess, you know, the collective mojo of the country, of our guests. Where are you on the mojo scale of zero is a complete mojo void, just an emptiness, and 10 is a superfluity of mojo, an absolute overabundance you can barely move for the mojo. I am at 11 on the mojo oh scale. Please stick me right in the oh right-hand corner. I've had a great day of production, yeah. of uh, in some money as well, and I did a lot of stuff that I'm proud of and enjoyed doing, and uh, this is capping off a great, a great day that started at 3 o'clock in the morning. I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've produced... Two podcasts, one substantial email. I've um, interviewed a minister for half an hour in front of 800 people. I emceed a conference from 9 o'clock till 5 o'clock and cycled here from down at the bottom of the harbour and had the most wonderful ride. And now I'm sitting here uh, with some uh, people that I enjoy in a studio I've spent quite a bit of time in thinking – Oh, those chocolate fish look good, and I'm enjoying a beer and a bit of a chat about the politics. Oh, fantastic. And you are the probably the only person that we could have found to bring in here that makes me seem pretty sane and unflustered <laughs> in your own schedule, which is just a normal day in the Bernard Hickey universe. But we'll come to that in a bit, I think. First, the other questions. In order to win a box of chocolate fish, uh, not that one, which, which came from Julie, um, our most beloved member of all, so thank you. I want to ask you... Uh, to predict the 
turnout for the election. You can go to one decimal point. Remember, it was 82, which was crazy high the last election. It'll, be in the, it'll have a seven in front of it. Yeah, it will. It'll, be, it'll be mid-70s. Because I don't think people are really excited about this. 75 yeah. point. Yeah, that's three. Three, yeah. yeah. Mm, <laughs> that. um, With good. great precision. Yeah. And, and the last one, the last thing we were just asking everyone is whether or not you have a particular politics-themed TV show that you like, you know, like a, a Thick of It or a Veep or a House of Cards or a Yes Minister or a Borgen. Got a couple of Borgens from the highbrow crowd. What are you into? I love Occupied. Oh, that's the one that's set in, is that Finland? Norway. Norway. And it was like 2016, incredibly prescient. Right. So the the um, setup for the show, and it was a three-series Netflixy job, uh, with Norway as, you know, one of, one of the great oil and gas producers with all the electric cars mm. and a pension fund as big as in everyone else's. Uh, suddenly has the most enormous, painful, climate-change-driven storm mm. three days before the election, and the Greens get elected to run Norway. And then all hell breaks loose because the Russians, who have been paid by the Germans to invade Norway and get the oil and gas started again, mm. after the Greens, as soon as they get into power, shut down the oil and gas and start building the most amazing nuclear power plant. It's the best setup for a right. political thriller, and it's actually really well done. The Norwegians it, have done it, well. Does it sort of seem plausible? Oh does yeah, you... yeah. No, it has it has quizzlings in it. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> and they're really well characterised human quizzlings. <laughs> I like it, and, it, and, and from a political economist point of view, from a political economy of it scans, it, it makes sense. You believe it? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's an element of you know wish list in there. <laughs> You know, quite like a major storm to hit the country a few days before the election and and change things. I doubt that's going to happen this time around. It's amazing to me actually that Gabrielle has made no difference whatsoever that I can that I can tell in in how people are going to vote. Mm, interesting, yeah. I Despite felt all the, this, at the time it felt mm. as though this will be a, a, a dominant theme of the election. It hasn't really come up, and you know. No, I interviewed Simon Watt yesterday, and he yeah. was going to kill off Giddy. He was going to. Um, shut down the clean car discount scheme, uh, use all the um, climate emergency response fund money for a uh, tax cut. Yeah, no, like, Gabrielle, what? Didn't even happen. Never, 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 never heard of him. Mm. And, you know, ACT is talking about (laughs) repealing the Zero Carbon Act. And, yeah, I interviewed um, David Parker today and he was freaking furious. You could tell. It was really interesting to watch. So a politician coming towards the end of his career, he's been there, he's done that, he's Mm. had his hands on the levers a couple of times Mm. and he's done a lot of work and changed a bunch of things and now three weeks, uh, he's three weeks away from seeing, and he used the word vandals, (laughs) coming in to wreck it all. To describe the other team, not Mm. his own. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, it's been... A fascinating, fascinating man, David Parker. You know, a, a pretty, pretty deep thinker on lots of issues, and and his having departed the portfolio uh, under the under the fog of you know various other various other goings on. The, sorry, the revenue portfolio. I mean, when the tax switch that had been proposed was captain captains called into the longest grass imaginable. Um, you know, I mean. That's the prerogative of the 
Prime Minister of the leader, I guess. I think I think I think David Parker and Graham Robinson accept that, but there is also an extent to which it must be kind of deflating when it's not for sure, but in all likelihood, this is the twilight of their political careers. Yeah, there's been a few tragedies play out in this term. Um, you know, obviously the Prime Minister uh, resigning after those awful protests, and um, uh, and David Parker is another one. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking to David over the years as he is a thinker. Mm. He is a he is a he's a political animal too. He's not one of these sort of policy wonks who doesn't really like the politics. He likes to get in there and mix it up and uh, he makes stuff happen. And he is um he's loyal of course, but his decision to uh not so quietly drop the re- <laughs> the revenue portfolio was I think the passive aggressive <laughs> Kiwi act of the year. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, let's put all of the current uh, political theatre to one side for the moment because I want to um, I want to talk about Bernard Hickey a bit, um, <laughs> right. and we'll make our way back to the politics of now and the media of now. But I like, I mean, I'm, I've I've always admired you, Bernard, since before I got to know you properly. You know, as one of the one of our real kind of deep thinking. Uh, Sometimes idiosyncratic, sometimes uh, sometimes um, I was going to say irreverent, but iconoclastic might be the word I'm looking for. You know, you're a, you're a kind of singular thinker, and you don't necessarily go with the pack. And you know, sometimes you bang on about some stuff, but 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 I, but I just I just, I'm just, right, I'm I, just right. <laughs> I just I just I'm just I'm just such a I'm such a Berniac, you know. I'm big Berniac, and let's go back to take me back to when you got into journalism where did you start as when did you start as a reporter back in the day how did it how did it begin yeah well I, I grew up on a dairy farm and I should have been a either a farmer or an agricultural economist or a a, 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 a banker a farm banker I should have worked for the rural bank hmm. it was used to be a thing called the rural bank it was a government-owned bank for farmers uh, or I should be working for like um Rabobank or something like that or some, you know, official in Treasury or, you know, MPI or something. I did a uh, – I studied agricultural economics at Mass University. Yeah. And then in my first year, late in my first year, I got bitten by the radio and newspaper bugs. I became a um, – a DJ, so to speak, at Radio Massey. Wait, 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 wait. How was this in terms of timing with Stephen Joyce? Because he was Radio Just Massey. Just after Stephen okay. Joyce. Right. Yeah. No, it's quite a thing. We often um, shoot shoot the breeze briefly about the Radio Massey days. Yeah. Wow. Um, quite a thing, really, because I, I called bullshit, bullshit on his fiscal hold stuff uh, in the 2017 campaign. Um, but, you know, a few days later we were shooting the breeze about Radio Massey and all of that. Wow. Yeah, no, he's that. he's a he's a fascinating a character. I got I got a lot of time for Stephen as yeah, well. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and uh, so Radio Massey, uh, so being in a studio like this um, with a, f- a few beers and chocolate fish, that that feels like a normal thing, you know. <laughs> Radio Massey had this studio up the back of the sports centre. Yeah, that was alive with fleas, because. Every student had brought in their dog and they, the, the fleas had bred in the carpet and when the carpet had never been <laughs> cleaned oh for like God. years. Oh and I I always could rely. The romance. <laughs> I could always rely after a good, you know, three or four hour session, often on a Sunday night, uh, to, to leave the studio with my ankles well and truly bitten. Mm. But having had a, the ball of a time playing, you know, turning, turning on the mach- machines with the, 
the um, the records that went round and round. It was great. Yeah. Record players, I think. Yeah, record, record players. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And we had those cassette discs. <laughs> you know, did you ever, Sam, have you ever seen a cassette disc? No. No, one of those ones that you plug in. A cassette. You've probably never seen a cassette. No, little, little no it's a like cassette. a six track. I had a, um, one of my one of my friends who was a bit of an old school hipster in high school gave me a Walkman with like a mixtape oh, he made yeah, for yeah, me on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no. no. this is old old school radio where you actually had a an actual uh, bigger cassette. like um, It's a cartridge. With a yeah, cartridge. cartridge. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you used to plug it in and it yeah. would play immediately. Uh, and you know that was that was fun, and you know people like um, Jeremy Corbett and hmm. uh, the the Corbett brothers, David Downs, um, uh, John Bridges, all of those characters hmm. were around then. I was in the Capping Review at Messi, so got my love of jumping up on stage and making a dick of myself. Bernard Hickey uh, does footlights, amazing. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Did what, what? What was the vibe? Was it like dressing up in tights and doing? Oh yeah, and student yeah. student Capping reviews it was pretty. Dumb. Yeah. 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 But and yeah. but it was fun. I wasn't very I was a hopeless at it. People right. like John Bridges and David Downs and those guys, they've gone on yeah. to major that careers. That was the scene. Yeah. 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 And um, you know, whenever I bump into them, um I'm uh in awe of what they've achieved. It's fantastic. And I feel like I'm part of a secret society as, you know, the, the failed member of the the um, Massey Capping Review. And So uh, you got the media bug at mm, Radio Massey and yep. you thought Exciting though agricultural economics is, you might do what instead? That I'd like to be um, a, a, a journalist who covers economics and finance. So you knew that right then. You didn't think I want to be uh, I want to be a, a, a music reviewer or something like that. No, I was always interested in the news yeah. and the economy and the politics and the finance. I was fascinated and always have and still am in how economies politicians work. That's mm. why I've, I've loved being up close and, and personal with it. You know, asking, doing interviews with the finance minister or um, asking the prime minister questions at, uh, in the um, post-cabinet news conference. That's mm. my idea of a fun time. Mm. And and also getting up at three in the morning and looking to see what the 10-year US Treasury bond yield has done. I'm fascinated by that stuff. And, I, and it should have gone. It should have, you know, dripped away like most enthusiasms do as you get old. But this one stayed, and I'm I'm loving it. I've essentially de- designed a career and a job around those particular obsessions: uh, <laughs> politics, finance, <laughs> economics, and media. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, and um, I'm a very lucky man. So, so what did you do? Did you did, I, did you go to Reuters? Was that your first thing, or was there something before Reuters? Uh, no. So for two years, I worked, um, you know, <laughs> for a hundred bucks a week at Radio Massey as the Radio Massey. News director, oh, and I was the fancy new- yeah, paid uh, money. Uh, yeah, a hundred bucks a week. Oh, yeah, it goes a long way in Palmerston oh, North in the eighties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had a, a, a Daihatsu Sharad that I could fill up for fifteen bucks. Yeah, and by the end of the second year, I was really enjoying this journalism thing, and I thought, oh well, I'll just apply to a journalism course and I'll get in. Of course, hmm. uh, I didn't get in at the first attempt. I was put on the waiting list. And eventually I got in and did the Wellington Polytechnic Journalism course. Right. And I did that. It was a six-month course at that point. They Mm. shortened it from one year to six months for for a a period. They eventually then widened it out and then it became, you know, one of those um, long-winded things on the end of the degree. Was that when it was sort of down the bottom of Allenby Steps, that sort of place? Where was it it physically in the day? It, It was there. Then it was in the dental school. 
on Willis Street. You know, the happened. murder house. Yeah, yeah. No, we this were was, talking about the murder house I on the pod the other day. To it the other day, and I thought, I've been in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, what a place to be. Too many ghosts. There was a few ghosts, and I I was trained with the um, typewriters. So we were doing the clickety clack thing. Mm. It was great. We had we had ca- we had uh, carbon and ribbons. And oh, it was so much sexier in oh, that day, wasn't clickety it? Clickety clack. And if yeah. you got the machine with the golf ball, it was it, it was a machine that went mm. click clack, and it was it was fun. And so we used to write our stories and do our thing. Mm. And I really got into that. I enjoyed that. Who was in your year? Who was in your group? Anyone else? Who's my lovely wife? Oh, uh, Lynn. Lynn Grievous. Lynn Grievous, magnificent woman. Yeah, and um, incredibly good photographer as well. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and she uh, produces stuff for for Getty, which often turns up on the spinoff and just yeah. about everything. In fact, our, one of our fun things is watching the the news show, the 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 One News six o'clock show, to see Lynn's pictures used in the background. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, nice. And then if we're really having fun, um, we'll look for Lynn's pictures in the background, and then me in the background of. <laughs> Of news conferences, towering over journalists, towering over journalists and politicians. Yeah, <laughs> another another night in at the Hickey household. Oh, so much fun, amazing. Okay, so after journalism school, uh, then I was unemployed for about a year, right? And or maybe six months, and uh, maybe in a, in, a, in a kind of in a way that was nineteen challenging. That was hard. Yeah, it was a time. Yeah, eleven percent right? yeah. unemployment. Yeah, and uh, now I couldn't get a job. And at one point, I actually just jumped in a car. And I did a, a trip around the North Island. I stopped at every town and every city and met with every editor. I knocked on the door and wow. went in and basically, give me, give us a job, give us a job. <laughs> and um, nothing. But then, interestingly, um, I also then started a, 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 a freelance journalism agency. Of course you did. Yeah. So I couldn't. <laughs> so I got all my – half of the people in the journalism course didn't have any work, right? Yeah. So we thought, oh, bugger it. We'll just get together and we'll, produ- we'll produce these articles and we'll sub them and we'll edit them and we'll use the fax machine to send the pictures to the Evening Post or whatever. Oh. It was great. So we wrote lots of stories for the Evening Post and the Dom and, you know, the Listener and local community newspapers for about five or six months until we all eventually got jobs. Oh. And, um, yeah, no, that's where I sort of got the bug for startups and, you know, trying to make a buck. And, uh, but then eventually um, a job came up at Reuters uh, as a junior markets reporter. And at that point, Reuters, as an international financial and general news um, wire agency, mm. was pretty much doing its own version of the internet for people in financial markets. So everyone had a terminal. Mm. It was a, they called it a, the green screen. Yeah. Literally, it had like one colour. And you could, and I did this for a couple of years with those big old mobile phones that were like, you know, your backpack. Mm. I would go to a news conference. Ruth Richardson would say something about, you know, how the New Zealand dollar was overvalued or undervalued or, you know, she was going to sack 10,000 more public servants or something. And I would ring in. Did you ring copy takers? Yeah. Did you have copy takers? Yeah, 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 exactly. And sometimes I'd have to ring, you know, like Hong Kong or London yeah, if well, it was late. Yeah. And I would dictate 142 characters headlines and they had to be finance minister Richardson says New Zealand dollar overvalued at 23 cents or whatever it was. And that would move the currency markets and the people who'd just paid $10,000 a month for (laughs) the one screen on their desk would go, yep, that, that paid me money. I made some money out of that. 
And so that's what I did. And what I found fascinating is that years later, after the internet had come along, so this was 1992, 93, I... I would see people doing Twitter headlines and they'd all be trying to remember the days when <laughs> I'm settling like an old man now. Remember the days when Twitter was like 152 characters and then they doubled the, the 140. Length. 140, that's right. And I realized that I had trained myself to write in the 142 length, yeah. characters. Yeah. So I yeah. I really got this Twitter thing. It was great. I, I remember I was just old enough to remember uh, when copy takers was a thing when I was working at the Guardian in London, and you would see them come in, and they would be on the the wire windows, which you'd use on a on a on a on a on a Windows based computer or, or it was a Macs, but but everyone would have their wire windows open, and you'd see Reuters coming in or AP coming in, and there were a few other whatever you wanted, but in a very short time those disappeared and people just looked at the Twitter feed because mm. you would get the same information but other information more quickly. Mm. And, and you so have to pay for it. Yeah. The idea of having the wire window open there so you could be in touch with what was happening in the yeah. world became redundant yeah. very quickly. This is why all of us journalists are all ex-addicts. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ex- oh, don't say that. No. You see, that's no. confusing as well because it makes it sound like you're saying the former s- addict. I know. But you're not. You're saying... Yeah, the service formerly known no, as Twitter. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, so, so Reuters, but that was that was learning, I guess, a craft more than anything, learning yeah. a discipline about how to f- put together information in a very efficient, economical, and useful fashion. That's right, and making sure it was accurate because you knew that there was someone on the other end of the screen who was about to put down 10 million pounds or whatever it is on the strength of that information. Mm. And if you got it wrong, they'd lose money. And, and we always used to put our phone numbers at the bottom of every story. Oh, right. So you knew that if you got it wrong, some decade of a financial trader in New York would ring you up and say, you yeah. asshole, why did you say million when you meant billion? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I got a few of those calls on occasion. One in particular, um, I was working in London at the time and I just reported on a, a US Federal Reserve official who had said that the um, uh, the Republic Bank of New York yeah. uh, was potentially going bankrupt, which was true. And mm. so I put out the Bank of Republic New York was going bankrupt, which was a completely different bank. <laughs> Boy, that was a day. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, so I went from Wellington with Reuters to Canberra uh, in 1994 Uh through six when um, Paul Keating was the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, The most fascinating, brilliant, scary as hell politician I've ever seen in all of the years that I've watched politics. Still going. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Still firing out verbal salvos. (laughs) That's right. He skewers everyone. Yeah. Um, You'd sort of, you know, you'd be scared if you were like selling coffee and up popped Paul Keating to ask you for a flat white. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, and no, he had a go at me a few times because we, we made So at this point were you doing political reporting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so I was asking him questions about, you know, the Australian budget and mm. the economy and mm. currency and all of that stuff. Yeah, no, I had an awful lot of fun there in Canberra for a couple of years. Then we went to Sydney and I by then was starting to – have staff and manage teams, and I was uh, running a team of equity reporters in uh, Sydney. And at that point, I was covering banks and supermarkets and media companies, including News Corp. And at that point, 
News Corporation was an Australian-based listed company. Sure. And every year they used to have their annual meeting in Adelaide yeah. where Rupert would um, present to shareholders in Adelaide where his father started the newspaper. Mm. And um, that was fun. So I used to go and cover Rupert Murdoch's news conferences. He's another, you know, dangerous, fascinating, brilliant, evil person. <laughs> Have you ever worked for News Corp? In the no, no, I've, yeah. I've not had the... Um, On a point of principle or just because it oh, hasn't really happened? No, no, if yeah. they'd offered me enough money, I probably would yeah. have done it as well. I mean, um, just happened that, uh, no, no. Um, so Reuters, uh, by then I went to London and um, uh, there, by then I was covering... F- uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions and banking and insurance and doing some of the big deals. And did you know all that stuff beforehand or were you kind of picking it up along the way? Obviously, you 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 know, your your knowledge deepens as you do it, but were you, you know, when you talk about equity markets, you talk about mergers and acquisitions, did you know all that stuff already? Or? Yeah, so I'd studied accounting and economics okay. and um, had done it at a very basic level. But no, you really pick up most of that stuff by just – you know, putting your finger into the back of the computer sure. and sucking yeah. it up. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I did that for, you know, by that stage I was eight, nine years into my career and um, living in London, um, uh, you know, in the stockbroker belt trying to take the train to, to, to London for work every day. And um, that was that was quite painful actually, just the sheer work of commuting just was just too hard. Mm. And um, and then I got an opportunity to join a startup. Now, remember, this was two thousand, so this was dot com boom boom. This was yeah. before the bust, First so everyone, everyone was very excited. Yeah. And uh, the FT Group offered me a job um, helping to set up this thing called FT Market Watch, hmm. which was a joint venture between the FT and Market Watch, which at that point was a uh, financial news startup in the states that was um, owned at that point by CBS. The, media company. And uh, that was a lot of fun too. So doing a startup in London, hmm. back and forth to um, the States. And I uh, did that for almost two years. <laughs> um, bizarrely, actually, today, I um, at this conference, I was hosting the uh, Climate Change and Business Conference in Auckland. Uh, one of the chairs of one of the panel sessions, um, Heather Peacock, who's now the chief policy advisor to the Ministry of the Environment, was a journalist who worked for me at FT Market Watch oh, wow. Wow. In, in London. Wow. And, um, yeah, well, we had a good good uh, chat about that today. Um, so it's amazing who you bump into and, and who you see. And at that point I, I worked with Peter Bale. Mm. So Peter produces the weekly um, world news bulletin for the spinoff now. Mm-hmm. So we're old sort of mates and colleagues from he was he was he was at Reuters in, in London at that yeah, point yeah. and he jumped to help set up and he was the editor of um, uh, news editor of uh, FT Market Watch and oh, that, I see. yeah and then okay. eventually he went on to become um, the head of uh, News's dot com operations at the Times and then went to uh, um, uh, Microsoft and CNN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. you know, so we, yeah. we've we've all been in that sort of space of being journopreneurial type startupy online people. And what happened to MarketWatch? Uh, eventually, it was wound back into FT.com. Okay. But by then, I had gone back to Reuters and I helped um, launch Reuters.co.uk and rebuild Reuters.com, based in um, New York. And uh, that was an awful lot of fun. And then eventually I, I, on my way back to New Zealand, I worked for a year and a half 
at uh, Reuters as a senior editor um, organising companies and macroeconomic coverage across Asia in Singapore and um, going to um, the Philippines and China and India and places like that. But you were on your way home? Yeah. um, We sort of knew that we would come home eventually Mm. and um, in retrospect, it wasn't a financially brilliant thing to do to come home, but, you know, elderly parents and all that. And And were you coming home to a job? Were you coming home to see what was there? No, no. Eventually I had to, you know, find a job from Singapore to come back and I came back as a business editor, well, actually just a reporter to start with, uh, with the Dominion Post. And Mm. uh, What year are we in now? 2003. Okay. And so within a couple of weeks they kicked me upstairs to be the business editor of the Dominion Post, as it was then, and uh, did that. And then I got kicked up to be the head of digital for Fairfax, New Zealand. I was on the um, advisory board for Trade Me and started to get to know what was going on there. Mm. And then 2000, by then 2008, I was literally on the management team at Fairfax. And I could see that uh, the business model for newspapers was buggered. But this it was, was the point at which Trade Me had been sold off just before yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it actually bought Fairfax another couple of years of profitability in, mm. in mm. New Zealand. And I could see that I was going to spend the rest of my career as an editorial executive sacking yep. people. Yeah. That I was going to be one of these corporate undertakers, someone who, who, who lives and works in a corporate version of a hospice making people's lives comfortable before they died. And that was going to be my job. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Did get, you realise that all at once or was that a growing realisation? No, it was, about, it was about six months of spreadsheets. That yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, this yeah. was through 2007 going into 2008 when we had the global financial crisis. Yeah. We could see it was coming. Yeah. The housing market was falling um, and, you know, the newspapers are like the bleeding edge of the – they're like the canary in the mine of the economy. Sure. When advertising and revenues fall for newspapers, you can see that something's going wrong. But there was also the structural issue. You know, uh, Trade Me had eaten the newspapers' lunches mm. on classified advertising and I could see that the rest was going to go and that I would literally be spending the rest of my career sacking people. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be creating jobs, not – Killing them. Yeah. And you must have had already some of that kind of entrepreneurial, innovative zeal. You know, mm. it's, it's in you there somewhere. Were you from within Fairfax offering ideas about ways to change that? And oh, they, yeah. Were, and and were, they, were they welcomed? Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, it was pretty good. Um, for example, I set up a joint venture with the NZX under Mark Weldon. Hmm. Huh. And it's a name from a yeah the past the yeah, past, yeah yeah no I remember the day when um, he was employed as the chief executive of MediaWorks mm. and at that point I was in the press gallery uh, on my own and wandered down the hallway to Paddy Gower and said you guys are fucked wow. <laughs> and he did, he wasn't he like what was he like a nice guy <laughs> you guys are fucked and then I walked back. And, um, yeah, that wasn't probably very nice to go and give these. I mean, I gave yeah, them warning. Wasn't, wasn't. So they knew that they were, in, they were going to be in trouble. There was going to be trouble. And yeah. Boy, there was trouble. Um, so uh, I, I – I, um, I've jumped ahead there, yeah. No, I, I took you on a tangent, but 2008 or whatever, you, you decide Fairfax isn't for me. You don't want to be yeah, I the grim to... reaper of, um, of yep. the newspaper. And then what? Was that, a, was that a leap into the dark? 
It was a bit. Um, I knew what I wanted to do, which was to start up a financial news service mm. and make it pay with advertising on the internet. And at that point, 2007, eight, people thought there was a future for actual advertising, banner ads and pop-ups, <laughs> those sorts of things. There was still a mentality, I remember it well, which was, yes, we can see advertising declining from the print product, but that's okay because it's coming up on the digital yeah. product. And at a certain point, they'll meet and then everything will be fine and we'll be going upwards again. Yeah. At that, even by then, I realised that wasn't going to work for what I call general news, you know, sport, um, the things that most people read. Mm. I realised that you had to go for the cream of the crop, which is financial advertising. Yeah. And even then, I realised that New Zealand really was just a housing market with bits tacked on. So what you needed to do was... Did you? Uh, when was you hadn't been, you weren't using that phrase all that way uh, back? I've been doing it. I've been, it's it's a good ten years old. It's okay. still true. It's okay. even more true yeah, every okay. time I say yeah. it. Um, and and um, so I realised that you had to plug into the where the real money was in the New Zealand economy, which mm. is the banks. Mm -hmm. And at that point, there was less than two hundred billion of um, fixed mortgages that rolled every eighteen months. And every time a fixed mortgage rolls, that's another opportunity for a bank. To, to win a customer or not, mm. or not mm. lose a customer. And so they have to advertise. They have to tell everyone that what their rates are and say, please stay with us or come to us. And uh, that meant online advertising, particularly around a service that provided a way for people who were um, rolling their fixed mortgages or their term deposits to compare rates. And that was interest.co.nz. Yeah. So that was already in existence, owned by David Chaston. And I went to him and said, hey, what you really need is a new service that I will provide. And so that's what I did for um, a good five years was help build up interest.co from a, a relatively small basic interest rate comparison service mm. into a news information analysis service with a fantastic interest rate comparison um, set of tools with David Chaston and a whole bunch of other people. We've employed a bunch of journalists and, and there's now uh, four or five um, fantastic journalist who, whose bills are being paid every month and it's mm. done a fantastic mm. job. I'm really proud of the things that I did with interest.co.nz. And and after five years, um, I thought, oh, this should make me incredibly wealthy. How come I'm not incredibly wealthy? And that was because at, by even by then, Facebook and Google were starting to eat the lunch of, of all the display advertising. So yep. the real winners in that game were never going to be display advertising, free, freely available websites. Not, I mean, interest is a very, it's a successful business. It, 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 it's um, done very well and um, re I think they've done a wonderful job, but they haven't built an enormous amount of equity. It's no trade me. It's mm. no $300 million business, so, uh, which I thought, you know, at some point, not $300 million, but I, I would have quite liked it if it, it, it had had, multiple millions of dollars in equity because I'd sweated some equity. I've I've made big mistakes over the years mm. sweating equity mm. and what I should have just done is bought a lot of residential bought, bought properties. Bought some houses. You did all right though on the houses front, didn't you? Oh, did you sell a house on, in Auckland for ex accidentally on purpose. a zillion dollars? Yeah, yeah. I take no credit for that. Yeah. It's just being in the right place at yeah. the right time and being old enough. And I'm embarrassed now when I meet young people who have no hope ever of being in housing simply because – I am lucky to have been born in 1967. Did you see last night, 20, 20, 24 years old, both both, both Chris and wow, Chris Upton, Chris Upton, Chris Upton. That was one of the inter most interesting bit, bits of information I got yeah, out of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, along with the fact that um, what they thought was an important thing to do 
in the climate change fight was to do recycling, <laughs> which is lit- <laughs> to embrace recycling. Embracing, to be clear, <laughs> which is literally less than five percent of New Zealand's emissions. Are, you know, uh, we have a particular problem in New Zealand where we think that recycling helps save the planet when actually they need to. Everyone needs to get out of the cars and and um, stop flying. So yeah. you was this when you launched? I'm trying to remember the name. It was like uh, something with New Zealand in the name. Was that, what was it? Oh, yeah. So after five years with interest, yeah. I thought I was beginning to think, you know, I'd quite like to make a difference here. I'd quite like to do some reporting that actually, you know, attacked the big issues mm. like poverty and climate change and housing and stuff. Mm. And I had this, I could sense that, you know, there was no more runway and interest to grow it into a, you know, world world-conquering beast, um, we'd employed as many journalists as we possibly could and it was always going to be, you know, what's happening with interest rates and house prices. And there is more to New Zealand than interest rates and house prices, although not much more. Uh, and um, so I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll start a philanthropically funded news organisation called journalism.org.nz. That's it? Yeah. That was the one? Yeah. And so I got together with Gavin Ellis and – and I, I assumed that, you know, all of these rich people who cared about the future of media. Because they kept telling you they did yeah. and that they would pay. Except just to, just, to, just to short circuit that a bit, if Substack, which you're on now with the kaka, had existed then, do you think they would have been different? I think that would have made a difference, yeah. Now, I think, um, and I know having actually built my own version of Substack in 2012-13 and used it for five years, oh. Literally, I, I um, <laughs> spent tens of thousands of dollars to put together uh, a WordPress-style um, blog mm. with uh, Stripe and uh, a database and a mailing system. Literally, you know, like janked them together, uh, which was what – that, and that's what Substack is, except Substack did it way better than I could and have built a business model around it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, journalism.org.nz – if Substack had existed in the way it does now, might have had a shot. Yeah, right, okay. And and, and also, remember back 2012-13, you know, there were still a lot of journalists around and uh, people didn't really understand what a journalism-free democracy would look like. They've got a better idea now. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's Although right. Although what I'm always thrilled and amazed to see is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm proud of – Interest.co. I helped uh, found um, newsroom.co.nz, mm. and I'm really proud and happy to be part of the whole spin-off crew. Mm. Um, and if you look around now, some of the best journalism that's being done is being done out of spin-off and newsroom and interest and mm. a bunch of people who weren't even there, you know, ten years ago. So it's amazing, you know, all the all the prophets of doom, including me, mm. that, you know, we'd have no journalists and PR people would rule the world. Um, it's amazing what we've achieved with very little. And, you know, if you look around, some of the writing, some of the journalism that's being done all over the show, and not just in the, you know, plucky startups, but in the TVNZs and the news hubs and the NZ Heralds and the stuffs of the world are pretty bloody good, actually. At risk of this turning into an episode of The Fold too much, um, <laughs> yeah. I need to ask you, over the course of that period, how was your view, your mindset shifting in terms of politics and how to talk about politics? So this is a media question too, but about 
how we cover politics, how politics is disseminated to the public, all of that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I thought that the way to cover politics was to uh, interrogate the policies, put the politicians on the spot, detail the policies to the public, and that would be good. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> that sounds pretty good to me. But having watched in the press gallery how politics is done and having thought about how people make decisions and and vote and choose parties or don't choose parties or even mm. choose to vote and not choose to vote, more and more I think that policy detail and policy wonk stuff actually makes very little difference and that what really matters is emotional connections and how people feel about things because that's what really gets them up in every morning to do whatever they want to do to vote. And you can try to convince them and have the best policies and all of that and have the most credible people and the most well-backgrounded, you know, sensible policies. doesn't matter a jot unless you have some sort of emotional connection, some sort of um, uh, some sort of vibe that gets people voting for you. And having come to that resolution, how did you change the way you talk about politics and you do journalism as a result? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I left the press gallery uh, at the end of last year in Wellington and moved to Auckland. Uh, in part because the substack I set up a couple of years, the Kaka, and all the other bits and pieces I do had been successful enough that I could do it alone. And and also I began to realise that the real, um, the really important, interesting things for me at least uh, were around were outside of politics. They were outside of the sort of hurly burly of the daily, you know, the bridge run and. Mm and question time and all of that stuff. After a while, I began to realise that that's a theatre. The scripts have been written, but nothing really changes. It's the same old performance every night. And actually, um, the things that really matter happen at grassroots, local government, global um, movements, um, the animal spirits of the internet, whatever it is that bubbles out of all the cracks. And it doesn't happen in Parliament much anymore. Often they follow. They don't lead. And often they're scared of the voters. They're not trying to convince them. They're eventually um, winding back to the status quo all the time. They're like these, you know, they're like the water that goes around and around the plug hole in the bath. Eventually they always end up going down the plug hole. They never actually move the water anywhere else. The status quo wins every time. And that has led you to a place where you're doing what you call, is this the right term, solutions? Yeah. Journalism? I mean, it's, it's basically me seeing some issues and un- trying to understand the landscape of how people feel, how they're voting, what the policies are, what's being discussed in public, and then saying, okay, uh, looks like nothing's going to change. Where are the new ideas coming from? Where are the proposals being put forward that are different, that might actually make a difference, that actually engage people, that actually, you know, people go, oh, well, that might work, or oh, what a good idea that is. Um, you're just not seeing it 
I think, in mainstream politics in a way that seems relevant. Sure, there may be people proposing things, but they, um, particularly the smaller parties who have aligned themselves with one of the big parties, end up just like one of those sparrows on the the back of <laughs> back of the rhino. You know, they might think they're doing things, but nothing. Is really but isn't changing. it in part that you know the whole arc of history is long uh, aphorism that these things move by increment, whether or not you're an incrementalist, uh, uh, you know, philosophically, that you know. Bernard Hickey says it's a it's a housing market with some bits, and I say change it all for God's sake. You know, it takes time to win those arguments to get things through using systems that are, you know, are built in to, of course, protect the status quo. But are you just being impatient? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm grumpy and angry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well, impatient. Yeah, I've been having a crack for ten years, and I've been this is you know thirty something years in journalism, and all that time I've been focused and really interested in trying to cover and mm. sort of sometimes involved in New Zealand's political economy. Here's a fun thing. So in that second year when I was at Radio Massey being paid 100 bucks a week to mm. be a journalist, pretend journalist, uh, 1989 was the year that David Longy resigned as the Prime Minister. And I knew this was coming. And then it, it, was, it was announced in the morning of his resignation, that there would be a press conference that afternoon in the Beehive Theatreette. So I'm in Palmerston North. And I thought, bloody hell, I'd love to be at that press conference. And you know, I'm, a, I'm a nobody in Palmerston North. And so I thought, okay, what can I do? I know, I'll forge a press pass. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I got, hold, don't tell anyone this. <laughs> don't worry, it's just between us, <laughs> yeah, Bernard. That's right. <laughs> So I forged a, an NZPA, remember NZPA? Oh, my press pass. God. I used one of those laminating machines and a pair of scissors. And, and I literally just walked straight into the Beehive and into the Beehive Theatreette and sat at the back of the room and watched the history happen. Wow. It was just thrilling. And, um, and of course, it wouldn't happen now. Um, but, you know, that was New Zealand. People could do that. And even if I hadn't been a journalist, I probably could have walked in anyway. But you were watching what? You were watching yeah. – you bring that up because you were watching rapid change. I was watching the people that I'd watched on TV who I'd um, shouted at the TV at, yeah. you know, Robert Muldoon, David Longy, Roger Douglas, um, Jeffrey Palmer. I mean, these these people were sort of giants. They were – and they did change things, and they were uh, really interesting, complicated, you know. They did huge things. Our economy is complete – our society is utterly different because of what they did mm. and what the, the levers they pulled. And so David Longy, who, you know, had, for many people is still a, a hero, a flawed hero, um, and there are still people in the Labour Party who – literally hate his guts because he allowed it or enabled it, all of that stuff mm -hmm. to happen. And then there are people like Michael Bassett who are still, you know, yeah. still fighting yeah. the fight uh, and Margaret Pope. Uh, so that, that stuff meant it. And so I watched Longy as the showman step down and hand over to Jeffrey Palmer yeah. in front of me and then walk out of the room up the side of the Beehive Theatreette and stop halfway through, and because it was Longy, he had to have a joke. He had to have the last laugh. Mm. He stopped. He turned around and he said, "Ah, oh, Jeffrey, I've changed my mind." <laughs> and he got the laugh, and then he walked out. <laughs>
Jeffrey. Yeah. Oh and, I, and I thought, shit, I, this is what I want to do. This is fun. Um, <laughs> and so, so eventually that's where I ended up again from 2012 till last year was in the press gallery. Mm. And I really enjoyed it. it Incredibly exciting and thrilling place to be, right? Like, but you've, you feel like you've done your time there. And tell me what you're doing now. Are you doing advocacy journalism now? Is that, is that the way you see it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not allied to any political party or no, any no, particular no. No, no, no. point of view. But um, there are interesting ideas that I want to um, bring to the surface and interrogate and suggest because no one else is suggesting them and not in a synthesised, organised, strategic way. And I'm doing it simply because I can and it's fun. <laughs> and, you know, I don't have to be a member of a political party or or toady around on a backbench for 15 years before I can actually do anything. Mm. I just write this stuff. And a whole bunch of people who are interested and frustrated are looking at that going, oh, that's an interesting idea. Oh, that, that won't work because of that, but how about we try it with that? And I go, oh, yeah, not bad. And so I'm, I'm just building this, I wouldn't call it a manifesto, it's like a collection of things that I'm writing about every day, as well as, you know, what's happening in front of me, just mm. to... Because often what I'm seeing in front of me is people who've decided not to address the problem because it's too hard. Mm -hmm. Housing, um, climate, poverty, that stuff. Uh, and they've made it like, – like housing. You were talking earlier on the podcast with um, people who are following the debates and how there hadn't been much discussion about housing this election. Why? Because they've both given up. They think it's too hard. And, of course, you know, we've had – four elections about capital gains tax and it was the third rail and we've had two prime ministers say, not on my watch. It's extraordinary. And we have the situation where we are growing our population faster than any other developed world country and we've never had a national conversation about it. We've never worked out that we're underinvesting to the tune of $100 billion in the past and another $100 billion in, in the next five to ten years even though we're getting population growth of 2 2.5%. We had more than 2% population growth last year. We had over 120,000 people given visas to work here, mostly temporarily, including a bunch we've systematically abused and fraudulently um, uh, brought here. Uh, and um, no one's talking about it. No one's saying... You know what? If we bring in 120,000 people a year, we should probably build a railway network and 70,000 houses a year. Is that a good idea, people? Then to do that, we should probably have a different tax system and, you know, mm. we organise things differently. No, no discussion whatsoever. I mean, people like the Greens are having a sort of a crack, but they, they talked about population for one week and then gave up. So, you know, these are the sorts of things I'm just throwing out there. <laughs> throwing them up against the wall. And it's an awful lot of fun. And actually, it turns out there's a bunch of people who pay me a little bit of money to right. write this. Have you sort of worked that out? Because one of the other things, I mean, I, I'd said impatient before, and I think you are quite an impatient person, and that's one of the best things. That's kind of, that's your motor in a way. Mm -hmm. But you've also, if you'll forgive me saying, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a friend and observer, sometimes there's, you're in a battle with yourself about that. You want to do 
so I mean, just listen to your day to day, you know. <laughs> and I, I mean, I remember, I remember, I remember when we were at a conference at the same time in Sydney one time, mm. and talking to you on the walk, on just a walk from to, towards to a, to, a, to a meeting place. Mm. And 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 I'd, I'd had a lovely night the night before and gone for a meal and had a night's sleep. You'd been up since two thirty in the morning. <laughs> In order to write a newsletter for a New Zealand audience, and you're just this absolutely, you know, this frenetic, incredible energy. And it's like sometimes I think, and maybe you do too, and I know Lynn does, like, come on, man, just pull it together. Can you have you found that equilibrium? Have you found a way to make it work without driving yourself to, I don't know, I mean, I kind of love it. I kind of love it, but where are you on that? Yeah, no, I mean, it is a problem. The, the, The burnout issue is a problem for. Lots of people who are, who do things a bit like me, and there have been times when I have you know just it's been too much, mm. and but I found a bit of an equilibrium uh, now, um, in part because I don't have to try and manage an organisation and make sure there's a, enough money in the bank to pay a bunch of people every every week, and I'm not a director of an organisation anymore. I was a director of newsroom for three years mm. and am still in a shareholder there. And that's a lot of responsibility and work as well as doing the journalism. And I found that I couldn't do all of that. So I stopped. I left newsroom and stopped being a director. And now I just do my own thing. Uh, and I, I have some responsibilities. Um, we've just taken on a, a part-time uh, reporter at um, at the Kaka covering climate, Catherine Dyer. So you know, I'm I've got to be careful. I don't try <laughs> try to re rebuild the empire again. But um, yeah, and no, I found some equilibrium. I do some exercise, and I'm a very lucky man. Um, it could all have gone pear shaped several times, and uh, on occasion it it has. So I, I don't have any great secret or you know, would say that I've beaten, I've beaten it, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, able to, to do the things like I did today. I talked about three in the morning and just doing all those things. I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I was doing something useful and, uh, I'm, you know, people told me that it was useful and it was good. And, and some of them will pay me money for doing that. And I feel like I haven't, um, sold my soul or done anything horrible or, you know, um, broken anything or um, allowed anyone to die on the table. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm, I'm in a, uh, a pretty good place um, compared with at times in the past when I've felt the load on my shoulders a lot of being responsible for a lot of people and a balance sheet and payroll and stuff like that or worrying if – Winston Peters might sue me, <laughs> which um, you know, or like a partner of a blue chip law firm might sue me. All right, well, let, let, let's stop there before you say something that might <laughs> might get us get us all some sued. other direct trouble. Yeah. I can happily happily do a whole twelve hour podcast probably just with you, Bernard. It's been a lot of fun. Oh my goodness, it's a time. lot of fun. Um, thank you for for coming in. Bernard is on when the facts change mm. on the spinoff. He's on the car car. He's He's everywhere. The, <laughs> the, the Bernard Hickey multiverse continues to expand yeah. and, and we're lucky for it. Thanks for coming in. The other thing I mentioned is I did do a monopod for when the facts change 10 minutes before coming on the show Yeah, as well. no, I had about that too, just in case you thought that wasn't enough. All right. Thank you, Bernard. That's the end of the third to last hour on the Megapod. When we come back, we're going to 
start unscrewing the bolts from the wheels of this 12-hour megapod and we're going to see what happens when we combine the chemical elements of some Gone By Lunchtime and some real pod. Um, it's going to be fun. Join us, please. This is the Megapod. Thanks for listening. There's plenty more where this came from on your Gone By Lunchtime feed. Thanks to Jane, Te here, and Samuel, and the rest of the team at the spin-off for making the Megapod happen. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.